The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month on The Compliance Life, my guest is Asha Palmer. Asha has the current position of CECO at Conversant by OneTrust. We talk about what it's like to be a CECO at a compliance tech and product company. We detail her journey from watching Claire Huxtable on the Crosby Show to wanting to become a lawyer to going to a historic black college and university, law school, moving to Abu Dhabi, becoming passionate about working in compliance, establishing her own compliance consulting firm, which led her to sitting in the CCO chair or CECO chair at Conversant by One Trust. She details for us some of her observations in moving from the legal to compliance profession and what compliance professionals need to be thinking about and more importantly doing in the future. It's a fascinating exploration. I know you'll enjoy this month's offering on The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode of The Compliance Life. I'm extraordinarily thrilled because I have with me Asha Palmer. Asha is currently the CECO at Conversant, but you're going to find out uh, a whole lot more in her role and a whole lot more in her career. So, Asha, I'm thrilled to finally be able to record a series of The Compliance Life with you. And uh, first of all, welcome and thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. Great to be here. So, Asha, could you tell us a little bit about uh, when you discovered or decided you wanted to be a lawyer at your college and law school experience? Of course, Tom. So I'm one of those rare, not so rare people that knew I wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight. Um, not just because I was always right as a child, which I was, <laughs> but because I um, started watching The Cosby Show at a young age and I saw Claire Huxtable and I was like, what does she do? Who is she? Why is she always right? <laughs> and really cool and awesome. And so I was on a path since I was eight to be a lawyer. And in fact, my parents would tell me, to try some other things, try science, try, you know, this, you don't know you want to be a lawyer. Um, but I did. Um, I also knew I wanted to go to a historically black college and university. Um, I grew up in California and didn't see as many African-American women lawyers as I wanted to. And in fact, talking to my guidance counselor in high school about it, she told me going to an HBCU was basically um, a pathway not to a top law school and essentially tried to discourage me. But I knew I wanted that historically black college and university experience. 
Um, not just because I had also seen that on the Cosby show, but because I knew that as an African-American woman and as a lawyer, I wanted that grounding and that footing and that strength that my parents had instilled in me, but in the professional world. And so I went to Spelman College, which is the number one HBCU uh, in America, and uh, loved it. Best decision I ever made. And I actually got into a top law school despite my guidance counselor's um, uh, track. It was actually a mission for me to not only prove her wrong, but to also show that um, the trajectory of historically black colleges and universities into top law schools did exist. And so I went to NYU for law school, um, did the traditional route after that to a major US law firm, and became a litigator. So let me ask you about the uh, HBCU experience. I grew up in the South and uh, historic black colleges and universities were part of the educational landscape where I grew up. And uh, this, so 60s and 70s, I uh, played sports with a lot of guys who went to those universities. And it was not a parallel uh, path, but it was a path that opened up, I thought, a lot of opportunities for African-Americans. And then moving forward, has that mission, is that mission still the same? And in your view, has that mission changed? I would say that that mission is still the same. Um, Spellman's motto is a choice to change the world. And it manifests that mission you just talked about, which is to open doors for African-Americans, but also to give them the tools that they will need to succeed once they walk through those doors. And that's that foundation, that's that grounding in history, that's that understanding of where we've come from to know where we need to go and where we have to go. And so it really gave me a different level of confidence and strength and assertion of my value in the corporate America world that that I feel that is invaluable. It sounds like part of your uh, Spellman experience was obviously inclusion, but also really a great camaraderie and uh, a feeling about Spellman. Did you find that at NYU or, or was your experience there something different? I found that at NYU very similarly to what I found at Spellman. Uh, because at the end of the day, people are people, right? And that is the, the beauty of understanding people. There's people you'll get along with and vibe with and have the same interests. And there are people that you won't. It doesn't matter the color of their skin or their gender or their sexual orientation. People are people. And so going to NYU, people ask me, was it a culture shock? And I always said, no, because people are people. And when you see individuals as individuals, then you, you can see that. And so we had a group um, that was part of my freshman section called The Family. And we came from every different walk of life. Um, LA, um, there was Persian, there was Jewish, there was African-American, there was, you know, um, completely 100% Caucasian individual. And 
women, men, and we called each other the family. And we relied on each other to get through law school, particularly first year. We had dinner uh, once a week where one person was in charge of cooking. And it was just such a beautiful experience because the point is binding together to get the foundation and the strength and the perseverance to get through very difficult situations. And we all know that law school is one of those very difficult situations. I'd now like to turn to your early professional experience. And you talk about being a, a litigator at a major, was it a New York law firm? No, I actually started off in Atlanta at the largest firm in Atlanta, King and Spalding. I was gonna say, can we name King and, King and Spalding there? <laughs> Uh, I think we can, <laughs> yes. What was your experience at King and Spalding like? Um, first of all, I got to return to Atlanta, which was absolutely amazing. And the thing I loved and part of the reason I chose King and Spalding was because I wanted to get hands-on experience very early in my career. I wanted to be on slightly smaller teams with more responsibility. Um, and quite frankly, Tom, I didn't want to live in a shoebox anymore. <laughs> so I was able to buy a home and have what I thought would be a quality of life. Although we all know that any first couple of years of law firm life, it, there's no quality of life. But it was a great experience. I had wonderful mentors wonderful um, caseloads. I was able to, you know, there's a lot of major companies based in Atlanta, like Home Depot, Coca-Cola. So I was able to work on some very high profile cases, small teams, great responsibility, where I really felt valued for my opinion and also pushed to be better and think about things a little bit differently than I had before. So I also started out in a big law firm, and although we didn't work 100-hour weeks, we worked 60 and 70-hour weeks, and I worked for some very demanding, very challenging partners. But what I came to realize was because of the pressure they put on me, it forced me to really up my game and become uh, a much better lawyer, and in many ways the lawyer I am today. Was that a similar experience that you had in terms of being challenged, being pushed, and being really put in some if not uncomfortable, difficult situations where you had to really up your game as well? Yeah, my parents um, have a saying that I'm sure, I know they didn't even invent, although I think at one time in my life I thought they did, but be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Um, and I asked to be you know, a sole associate on some major cases or the most senior or you know, have more responsibility. And so people gave that to me, um, which meant you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so I had to perform and that has been a tenant, I believe, of my career, which is when you ask for stretch opportunities, when you ask to be great, you have to then deliver. And I have always tried to um, do what I say I'm going to do and do it well um, and do it even better than some of my peers so that I would continue to get those opportunities. I always said my responsibility was to make my boss look good. <laughs> and, you know, in doing that, I also make myself look good. But it really is that teamwork and and you can't ask for opportunities that you then don't live up to. And so I would ask for that. I would stretch. I would work nights, all nights sometimes, but I would deliver a product that I was proud of, that the 
um, you know, partners still marked up all over the place. We know how that is. But, you know, the foundations were there and I could learn from their expertise and their experience and feed that back to be better the next time. So, yes, I got those opportunities. I tried to perform with excellence each time. I didn't always succeed, but I did well. And it really made me a better lawyer and how I approached the law was a lot um, more sustainable, I think. And like you said, something I still use today. You then moved over to the Department of Justice in the Northern District of Georgia. I wanted to ask you about that experience, but before uh, we get to your experience, could you explain to our office, what's the difference in the districts in the Department of Justice, like the Northern District of Georgia, as opposed to uh, practicing at Maine Justice in DC and how do the offices all relate to each other? Yeah, so we we at the Northern District of Georgia were charged with really issues that pertain to our geographical footprint. However, we still worked with Maine Justice for cross um, geographic issues. So for example, if there was a company that was defrauding the government in multiple jurisdictions, a lot of time Maine Justice would coordinate those things. And we as the um, geographic locations would partner with them to do that. So it, it really depended on the breadth of the scheme that we were investigating, how far reaching it was, um, where the cross-departmental um, collaboration would come. I would also say Maine Justice will coordinate some of the geographic regions are better in certain areas and in certain expertise levels because of the types of cases that they've had. And so Maine Justice might pull you in even if it's outside of your geographic jurisdiction, if you've had some shown some expertise in that manner. Now I'd like to turn to your personal experience at the Northern District of Georgia. Who did you work with? What types of cases did you work on if there were types? And really what was that experience like for Asha Palmer? Yeah, I did have um, a short stint at the Department of Justice. Um, amazing experience. I am still a huge fan of the person that hired me, Sally Yates. Um, she, again, just regal, smart, driven, pushed all of us within the department to be excellent and to think about things innovatively um, and just amazing. So Hallie, Sally Yates hired me. I worked for the civil division of the Northern District of Georgia, which is often forgot about. Um, a lot of people talk about the fraud section um, or the economic crime section, but the civil division also is charged with recovering money that was wrongly uh, paid out by the US government. And our big focus at the time was actually uh, Medicare and Medicaid fraud and companies who were claiming to do types of rehabilitation or PT or OT and were claiming money from the US government and receiving it, but not actually delivering those. Um, we also had a lot of education clients at the at at the point where we could see that people were defrauding um, students out of their student loan money. And so we did a lot of that civil recovery on behalf of the US government under the False Claims Act, which I say is the sister to the FCPA. But it's really when you make a false claim to the US government for payment and you really didn't actually deliver the services that you say you're doing.
Asha, what are some of the key things you learned working in the Northern District of Georgia that built upon what you learned at King and Spalding? So what was really cool for me sort of connecting those two, not only did I get trial skills, right, which I think are amazing skills to have because as a litigator, you need to be able to tell a story, whether it's to a judge or a jury, you need to think about the story that you're telling and how you really get buy-in and understanding from the people you're trying to tell the story to. And that was the same at King and Spalding. That was even greater when you're not dealing with jury trials um, at the US government. And so how do you really blend those two to say, here is the story and here is why you should rule in my favor. So I think storytelling was one. Two was also about maximizing efficiencies. You know, we, we have scalable, repeatable cases or processes. And so to me, it was not just how we litigate or, or recover these proceeds, but how do we feed that back into the system of how do we prevent or deter persons from committing these crimes per se um, again. And so are we building the controls within the government to deter or prevent people from doing these crimes and not just sort of chasing them after they do it? And so that was a big deal to me. And one thing I fed a lot into my compliance career, which is what can we do better to be more effective and efficient in how we deliver it? And I would say, lastly, um, one of the great parts about um, working for the Department of Justice was really it almost feels like community service. You're making not only companies better, but the country better. And you're really ensuring that your contribution to the world is, is something that makes it a bit more ethical and a bit more moral. And so to me, that was something that I, I hadn't necessarily felt I could contribute to um, on the private side. Asha, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode because we're going to start with the question of what do you think about Abu Dhabi? So with that, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up Another episode with Scott Sullivan in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.